Psalm 7. This is a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. So at some point, David sang this psalm, and it's preserved here by the Spirit for us as the Word of God. O Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me. And deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment that you have commanded. So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back... He will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent Dealing shall come down on his own crown. I, however, will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Amen. And then 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. The final chapter in Paul's uh, first epistle. To the church at Corinth. You know, these, the last chapter of the epistles get very little attention, um, but you'll see it, it is uh, a very relevant text to compare to Psalm 7. Uh, so let's go 1 Corinthians 16. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, Paul's talking about the offering, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, The Lord's Day. Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, basically modern day Greece, and it may be that I will remain. 
or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus, Achaicus, excuse me, Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, and my love be with you, with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. There are some things in the Bible that are disliked more than others. For some reason, the church joins the world in disliking portions of Scripture and very often will offer apologies based on a plain teaching of Scripture or a plain reading of a verse that they anticipate might offend someone. You've been maybe a part of this conversation. Maybe you've watched an interview, read a book, or you know, been a witness to a conversation like this where someone talks about something like the only way to salvation is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can kind of see the person that you're watching or, or maybe you were the person, sadly, in the past. We all uh, are tempted by these things. Well, you kind of apologize for the hard edges of Scripture, what you perceive to be hard. Children, this is a temptation that you will face where you'll be tempted to soften what you think are the hard edges of Scripture, or where you might say God is mean. Maybe you won't ever be guilty of apologizing for the Lord, but there will likely be a temptation that is close to it. Christians often struggle with having a preference for certain portions of Scripture, but that preference is not based on a general love of God and His Word. Rather, it is based upon some sinful crafting of God that has been done in the mind. 
which would be a violation of the first and the second commandment. If you craft God to be how you want him to be, you have violated the first commandment. If you claim to worship the true God in a way that his word doesn't command, you violated the second commandment. You can't worship him if he is not him, and then you can't worship him in the way he desires if you adopt that mindset. That's the first two commandments. Now, Psalm 7, verses 11 to 13, and 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, capture a thing in Scripture that is disliked. And I want to spend some time on it this evening. If you're going to open your Bible and, and follow along in that way, I would encourage you just to, to open it to Psalm 7, since there are more verses there and we'll, we'll spend more time there. But I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. And I'm going to come at it using a question. Using a question. How does the Lord view those who do not love him? How does the Lord view those who do not love him? Now, let me help you before you run to making exceptions, or as I said earlier, apologizing for God. More than one thing can be true without it being a contradiction. That is to say, God can both love the sinner in that he gave Jesus Christ out of his great love for the world, that all might be saved, that whosoever believes might be saved, while at the same time saying what he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22 and Psalm 7. That's just one example. Just like another example would be that you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved by grace through faith, but you also must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Those aren't contradictions. Those are both true. You must let the word of God stand and say what it says with your full agreement, lest you invent a God and a religion of your own making. So how does the Lord view those who do not love him? 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Another word that you might be some of you might be familiar with, maybe all of you, is anathema. Let you come under the curse of God if you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this, one who writes as a pastor with a gracious and patient heart, but a heart that understands and is under the influence of the Holy Spirit, writing things without error. Paul says, let him be accursed. If he or she does not love the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does a cursed mean? It means let you fall under the curse of the Lord. Or to say what Jesus says in John. If you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are condemned already. You are already under the condemnation of God. What is the basis of this? For Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 22 it is on the basis of not loving the Lord Jesus. And one of the reasons I wanted to start with this verse rather than end with it is because I want you to see from the get-go that we are serving one God. There's not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. He didn't change his mind. He didn't change his heart towards sinners. 
It is the same God. It is the same heart of God. He didn't have a heart transplant. He didn't change his mind in both the Old Testament and the New. He is the same, as Paul says in Hebrews, yesterday, today, and forever. And there are no contradictions. And this verse, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, among countless others, proves it. But Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13, fleshes it out even more. And there's a difference in, uh, it's wrong to say that there's a difference in translation here uh, in verse 11. Uh, the New King James, which is what we normally read, says, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Now, um, I don't remember what the ESV says, but I know the New American Standard says God has indignation every day. Right? It doesn't say that he is uh, angry or has indignation with the wicked every day. Well, why is that? Well, because with the wicked is implied based on the verses that follow. It's not directly in the Hebrew, but if you're looking at a New King James, uh, and I think even in the King James has it here as well, it has the, the italicized words to show you that what they're doing is adding words not to the Bible, but to help you understand, right? Not changing the scripture, but to help you understand. And the reason they do that is because the very next few verses make it very clear who God is angry with every day or who God is angry with. It's the man who does not turn back. That is to say the man who does not repent. That is to say the man who is wicked. Or to use 1 Corinthians 16, 22 language, the man who does not love the Lord Jesus. God is angry every day without the words supplied. Well, who is he angry at? He's angry with the wicked. He has indignation. That is, he has righteous hatred and anger towards those who do not repent. And notice it doesn't say some days. It says every day the Lord is angry with those who are wicked and to draw from the earlier part of Psalm 7, it is those who persecute his people. Notice how this meditation of David, based on the words of, um, of Cush, a Benjamite, how it begins. He says, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest or so that they will not tear me like a lion." And rend me in pieces while there is none to deliver. Oh God, these people are all around me. These people who hate you. These people who persecute me, your servant. Save me from them. Those are really the only two parties in Psalm 7. Those who are persecuted by the wicked and those who are wicked. God is addressed, of course, but there are two human parties. So who is the human party? That God is angry with every day. It is the man who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the spirit though. He doesn't stop there in this holy record of how the Lord views those who do not love him. The psalmist records that the wicked are those who will not repent. Verse 12. If he does not turn back. Well, who is he? Well, we're not talking about God because no one's going to sharpen their sword against God. If he does not turn back, 
he will sharpen his sword. Who is the first he? Well, it's the man or the type of man that God is angry with every day. This is those who will not repent, those who do not love the Lord Jesus. The psalmist says that the wicked are those who will not repent. You, Christian, who, who limp along in obedience, trying ever so uh, diligently, though finding yourself in Romans 7 caught up over and over again, that you find yourself not doing the thing that you want to do, but doing the thing that you don't want to do. You are not the wicked. You in Christ have been made righteous. God's anger has been directed at Christ on the cross. You strive to serve the Lord. You desire repentance. You pursue it. You strive after it. You seek to turn from sin, claiming the mercy of God in Christ. This is not you. The psalmist says that those who are wicked, those with whom God is angry, are those who will not repent. Those who will not turn from their wickedness that they know they are committing. Now, as I say that that's not you, dear Christian, let me say that those kinds of people are in the church. The church can have people like that. That they love their sin so much that they prove to be one with whom the Lord is angry. They know and hear these warnings of the Lord and quite frankly, they just don't care. Be careful with your own sin in this, lest you prove to be one with whom the Lord is angry. You see, if there is no repentance, if the wicked does not turn back, then they must know, friends, you must know, so that you will view the wicked properly, so that you will pray for them properly, so that you will talk with them properly. If they do not turn back, what must be known is that the Lord sharpens His sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. Notice it doesn't just say that he has a sword or that he has a bow, but he's prepared them. He is preparing them. Isn't it profound to consider the Lord in this fashion? Children, maybe you've shot a bow and arrow before. Maybe you've seen the movie or read the book about Robin Hood. The Lord has a bow and he has arrows that he makes into fiery shafts and they are prepared for the wicked, those who will not turn back from their sin. Verse 13 even tells us that God prepares for himself the instruments to carry out this judgment, not just a sword, not just arrows, But he prepares for himself instruments to bring about this death, this punishment. Imagine, we know that God is good, that he's perfect, that he does not err, that he cannot lie, that he's holy, just, and good, and loving, and all those things. Imagine how good of an archer the Lord God Almighty is. And that is not that all is... Uh, stated that will befall the wicked in this passage. Very much like the book of Proverbs, the wicked plans iniquity for others, but he falls into it himself. As if falling under the judgment of God is not enough, you're going to be a fool all along the way. 
And yet we as Christians, we, we don't look on this passage and blush or be embarrassed. We rejoice in the Lord, as the last verse says. We praise the Lord according to his righteousness because it is his righteousness that put the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. It is out of this understanding of who God is that great praise should spring forth out of our hearts. It's not a general praise to any God, but the covenant name of God is used twice in the final verse of Psalm 7. I will praise the Lord, the covenant name. I will praise God. I will praise the Lord Most High. I will sing praise to His name, the one who has the power to do these things, the one who promises To do these things, the one who put his son on the cross for me. Out of this understanding of who God is, great praise should spring forth. Praise to his perfect and undeniable name. Now it is tremendously important for you as a Christian, especially today, because of how readily accessible the Bible is and how much unbelief is growing in our country. It is tremendously important for you to meditate on the hard places of Scripture like this. Tremendously. Those who are wise in the way of this world will often attack Christianity based on passages like this. And what will you say? Will you watch that YouTube video when you're late? Uh, up, up late one night and upset about how things are going in the church or upset with your spouse because of this decision that they made for Christ or whatever it might be. And these great trials of faith, what do you think the flesh is going to draw towards? Where will the enemy put his finger in the scriptures? It's not on the passages that would bring you, you know, uh, Forgiveness of sins or anything like that. It's on these passages that would make you view the world rightly. It's on these passages that you would be tempted to apologize for. The passages that bring you back to the Lord are not those are going to be called into question. It will be these passages that you're tempted to blush at. You're tempted to draw away from. You're tempted to say God is mean. You see, this same Holy Spirit that you were promised in your baptism is the Holy Spirit that led the saints of old to write these words and to preserve them throughout the ages by God's providence. David did not make a mistake because David wasn't simply the writer. David was the instrument. The Holy Spirit is the writer. God Almighty is the writer of Holy Scripture, not just of Psalm 7, but of the whole Bible. I would urge you to remember the warning of Christ in the Gospels. Luke records it like this. Maybe you've heard it before. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and of the fathers and of the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes. You see, the truth is, as Christians... We don't look out on the wicked and think that we have been brought from wickedness to everlasting life because we're more intelligent, but because of the mercy of God in Christ. Romans 5, 8, when you uh, begin to consider what it is to be outside of Christ and how God views those who do not love the Lord Jesus, Romans 5, 8 begins to make sense. At the right time... Christ died for, it doesn't say the elect. 
It says Christ died for the ungodly. Were it not for this, Psalm 7 would be about you. It would be about me. These affections of God would still be directed towards you and towards yours. As as, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, you've been born into this death of trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in his mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, Christ died for us and has given us faith by grace. You see, God has also given his people his spirit so that they might not be ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, and so that they might not change his word, as Revelation says in two different places. But through it, even in the hard places, find everlasting life and great comfort no matter the season. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray.